0: Hi, folks. It's Voss here from The thechrisvossshow.com. The hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. Oh, my God. It's another podcast. We've made hundreds of these podcasts. I think we're going to close in on a 1,000 here soon. Uh, hundreds of podcasts, and you know what we did today? We made another one. Oh, my gosh. Like, who saw that one coming? Anyway, guys, we have all the uh, most brilliant authors and guests, and of course, review the greatest products on The Chris Voss Show. Uh, be sure to, for your friends, neighbors, relatives, go to thechrisvossshow.com, thecvpn.com. You can see all nine podcasts over there and subscribe. It's a really cool thing you can do there. If you want to see the video version of this, you can see it on youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification button so you get all the ding notifications on your phone because God knows you don't. Have enough already? Uh, go to Goodreads.com. Follow me over there, Goodreads forward slash Chris Vosh. You can also follow us on Facebook. We have a few book clubs over there as well. Today we have a very interesting gentleman. Uh, this uh, gentleman uh, you may know him. Uh, he is Matthew Iglesias. He co-founded Vox.com with Ezra Klein and Melissa Bell in 2014. He's currently a senior correspondent focused on politics and economic policy and and co host The Weeds podcast twice a week. You definitely want to check that out. He is the author of the new book that just came out, 1 billion, billion. One billion Americans. I can't do my Carl Sagan, evidently. One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Welcome to the show, Matthew. How are you?
1: I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome sauce. So, Matthew, give us your plug so people can check you out on the interwebs and where to get your book.
1: Um, you can get my book, you know, wherever fine books are sold, uh, Amazon, your local bookstore, you know, local bookstores are really hurting, uh, during this pandemic. Uh, so, so, so check it out there. I'm on Twitter constantly at Matt Iglesias there. It's Iglesias with a Y, um, writing for vox.com all the time. And, uh, you know, just really excited to talk about the book.
0: This is pretty cool. You co-founded vox.com. I think we've all heard it, seen it, read it mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. So that's pretty darn cool, huh?
1: Yeah, it was good. You know, I, I, I co-founded it uh, about six years ago. I was the executive editor for a couple of years, and then I got to uh, fire myself from my management role there and uh, focus on writing, which I'm actually good at. And we now have some very skilled managers running the website, uh, running the company there. And it's been, it's been exciting to watch something that, you know, was just a goofy idea uh, really grow and prosper over, over the past few years.
0: That's the beauty of starting a business and being an entrepreneur is is you take an idea and then years later you look back and you go, wow, you're like, what if I never like even turn that, you know, turn that knob or whatever. So what motivated you to write a book on, on this prospect or this concept of idea of 1 billion Americans?
1: (laughs) Sure. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different ways you can think about it. I, you could do like a serious way, but I've, I've been promoting this on, a, on enough podcasts now. I just, just tell you the truth. Um, and, you know, people would ask me, it's like, oh, you know, you want to write a book about this? You want to write a book about that? And it always seemed like, well, if I did that book, it would be boring, right? Like a lot of books, it's kind of you start with a strong article and then you're just padding it out with filler. Um, and I didn't like that. So I didn't want to write a book, Um, but I got this bug in my head, just the phrase, one billion Americans. And I really liked it. I I liked the phrase. I was like, this is is a cool slogan. Maybe I should tweet a lot about one billion Americans. Um, And you know, I didn't, I didn't write anything. I didn't write an article, but I was just thinking in my head like, well, what would it mean to have a billion Americans? Like, how would you get them? Where would they go? Where would their houses be? Uh, And I started to see in my, in my mind, like all kinds of chapters, you know, like one about how we could improve immigration policy and get more people, one about how we could do more to support parents and children so people could have more kids. One about housing, one about transportation, one about the economics of population growth, one about just the basic facts as to how sparse this country is, and loop it all together. The idea that like, these are all just good ideas on their own merits. They'll make us a a happier, better, wealthier country. also fundamentally, they will allow the United States of America to continue to play a sort of preeminent role in the world at a time when I think a lot of us have seen increasingly, you know, disturbing news out of China, this growing anxiety about Chinese influence in the world and anxiety about America, right? Both people who vote for Donald Trump, because they feel like we have to make America great again, and people who vote against him because they feel like this is not who we are as a country. This is not what America is about. And, you know, can we recapture a real spirit of America as a, as a proud but open country that takes care of people and, and, and cares about ourselves and, and our families? And, and that's the book.
0: There you go. So, uh, my first question is: uh, You 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 write the case in the book for uh, what would be great if there were one billion Americans. Uh, my first question for you is: Have you met Americans? Like, do we really need a billion of uh, people <laughs> running around going Merk? <laughs> I mean, do we need a billion asshole Americans as they were known around the world?
1: Americans are great. I I love Americans. I let me tell you, this is America in a nutshell to me. I was with some American uh, journalists uh, years ago in Germany and we were, um, we were touring around, we were talking to different officials, doing different things. And we, we were in like one of those like weird little European vans um, and we were in Dresden and going through some, some back alleys, it's really tiny. And we get to a part where the van can't, can't go because somebody has parked a smart car and they haven't quite parked it right. So there's not space. So the driver of the van, he starts, trying to, he starts trying to back the van out. But, you know, like driving backwards in a really narrow space with a really long vehicle, it's like super hard, you know. Mm-hmm. So this woman, older woman who was there in our American group, she says, like, let's just get out and move the car. And the driver, he says, no, 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 no. And she's like, yeah, it's light. She says, look, we got these young guys here. Just, just tell the guys to get out of the car, pick it up and move it. And the says, it's not possible. It's not possible. And then she turns to me and another, this is, I, I was in my, in my mid-20s, a couple guys the same age, says, guys, Matt, get out. Just pick it up. And so we're going and, and, and we get out because this this older American woman is yelling at us. The German bus driver says, it's impossible. It's impossible. And we go, four of us We pick it up. You know, it's like a little rinky-dink smart car. And we just move it a couple feet or as they would say, a half a meter uh, over to the side. And the van goes and the driver, he's shaking his head. And this woman, she says, and you know, that's why we won the war. That's what happened to Dresden. <laughs>
0: We moved the smart car. That's why we overthrew the Nazis. (laughs) You know, and it was
1: it was a classic obnoxious American moment, you know. Uh, yeah. But I do think that it's true. I mean, it's not true that that's, that's why we won World War II. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that Americans are characterized by a can-do spirit mm-hmm. and a sense of trying to find our way around and through obstacles. This is mm-hmm. a country that is populated by people who made the difficult decision to come here, you know, to improve their lives. Um, and that's something that almost all of us here have in common. That's very deep into our culture. And it, it's a country that believes in doing big things, and sometimes we can annoy other people with that. sometimes we can be obnoxious, we can be rude uh, we can um elect a maniac to be president <laughs> like things things can go wrong uh but like i I do believe in us and and in our ability to achieve this mission of 1 billion to have a second American century and to meet the concrete challenges. It's like, you know, if we triple the population, we're going to need some more bridges. Uh, yeah. We're probably, we're probably gonna need a train somewhere, but like, I think we can do that stuff.
0: Yeah. The, uh, uh so what is your idea to get 1 billion Americans? I mean, I lived in Utah for a while. Are you just mm-hmm. gonna have the Mormons keep doing what they're doing? Or what's what's up with that?
1: Yeah, they're doing great. We're just all <laughs> gonna um, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get the Book of Mormon. Because they're they're
0: it. on their way, man. They're, they're um, I'm, I'm just surprised gonna, they're not a billion I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna tell everyone the good news about the Latter-day Saints. Um, no, so you know, there's there's two ways to get more people, right? The fast way is you let more of the foreigners come in. Um, mm. and why not? Like why why are we expending incredible resources, you know, we have more people working in immigration enforcement than working for the FBI. And, you know, like, the people the FBI catches, like bank robbers, kidnappers, the mafia. Like, that's really bad. We should we should investigate those crimes. Um, yeah, the president. Uh, you know, people want to move here. And look, it's important. Like, we have rules. People want to enforce the rules. I understand that. But, like, we can make it easier for people to come legally instead of being like, well, my grandfather came the right way, and like, yeah, so did mine, because it was easier to yeah. come. Yeah. Um, so, so let more people in. The other way is, you know, we we grow our own, um, and that means looking at the fact that people are having fewer and fewer children over the past forty years, and they say that they are having fewer children than they would like to have, and they say that the biggest thing driving that is the cost of childcare. And so we need to have some programs to help people with that. Just like we we have Social Security and Medicare, so that people can retire. And we have to consider that you know people in their twenties, um, you know, which is when people have kids typically, um, don't have the financial resources to meet the modern costs of childcare and you know, and other things, car seats, all, all like that. And we need to we need to give people some help, and then we can. We'll have more babies. We'll have more immigrants. Uh, we'll bump the growth rate up. Not not just anything crazy, but we could grow our population as fast as Canada's population is growing, or as yeah. fast as we grew in the 70s. And that puts us on course to triple by the end of the century to stay ahead of China and uh, rule the world.
0: And I kind of jumped ahead because I really wanted to get that Mormon joke in there because I, I have issues. We're all uh, here
1: for Mormon jokes.
0: That's, oh, yeah, there you go. That's love-
1: really why I wrote the book.
0: I mean, I mean, certainly uh, wh- whoever the gala is running, I, I've ignored her name on purpose, but I think she has like seven kids, and you're just like, what's going on over there? Um, but uh, jumping back, let's lay a foundation on why this is important, because this is something I've actually thought about. One of the things that made uh, America kind of like this rising power of an empire in through the last 250 years is because I think we had a, a, a pretty fast growth in who we were, at least from an educational basis, we put out more engineers than any country in the world at one time. Uh, we we educated more people. Um, it, we we kind of went through this whole. I think you know the wars helped us uh, from a financial basis, an aspect of of uh, growing things, at least up until the Iraq War, I suppose. Um, the uh, and so and so there was a you know we we're expanding country, a growing country, and like you say, we've kind of hit a step. And in recent years. You know, I've, I've been watching since I was young, uh, you know, the prospect of like, uh, eventually China is going to figure out how to quit being a poor country. They've got, you know, billions of people over there. Uh, they just actually figured out that their breeding law was stupid and was working against them. Um, and and it's going to turn, it was going to turn them, I think, into the most uh, biggest uh, economy in 2025. But I think now that's been reset or pushed back because of their GDP manipulation. So. What, what are some of the things extenuating to that? I mean, what's the what's the benefit to, for us to go to this? And then we'll get in the weeds of, why, of how we should do it.
1: Well, you know, there's a lot that comes with size that so we take for granted. Uh, size United is everything.
0: Says- size matters is what you're saying.
1: Absolutely. It does. No, I mean, so... The United States has been the world's number one economy for a bit over a hundred years, so nobody who's alive today you know knows a world where that's not the case, but the gap is shrinking um, so it turns out you know it's interesting question when will China overtake us? Uh, nobody knows not just because it's hard to predict the future but because The actual measurement is subject to sort of dispute and uncertainty. Uh, But if you look at quantities, you can see in certain areas, China is the number one market for movie box office, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are releasing a new movie, you have to care most about access to the China market. And what's happened, PEN America has done this great report about this, but that means that it used to be, if the Chinese censors didn't like your movie, you know, you didn't show it in China. It limited you somewhat. But now China's the whole ball game. So mm-hmm. every studio lets almost every movie be censored by the Chinese government. And then you saw when Daryl Morey, the uh, NBA general manager, when he tweeted support for protesters in Hong Kong and the Houston Rockets got taken off the air in China and NBA players, all kinds of league executives, they criticized not the Chinese government, but him for speaking out in English on Twitter, which is banned in China anyway.
0: yeah, You know, it's, a, it's so not like he all. was saying
1: like, <laughs> oh, I wanna go do a protest like in the middle of a game that's hosted in Shanghai, right? And so instead of economic interdependence spreading democracy to China, the way I think a lot of people had hoped, it's done the opposite. It gives China the opportunity to export its own speech and thought controls uh, into the West. and. You know, you can try to counter that with, you know, trade moves like earlier this summer, we were going to maybe ban TikTok, uh, but then I guess we didn't. But like messing around with like video meme apps is not... Is that going to get the job done, right? You have to think about, we were joking around about, about World War II, always a, a funny, lighthearted subject, earlier. And you, know, you look at it and it's like, well, okay, why was America able to intervene decisively in that war? And it's because we had the biggest economy in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Franklin Roosevelt said, well, we're going to be the arsenal of democracy. That wasn't just like a nice speech. And it's just not something that, like the prime minister of New Zealand couldn't say that. He could. what yeah. Will we'll be the arsenal. It's like no. Like you'll you'll give us some wool. You know. Yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's a little. It's a nice country, but it's. You waiter you know, tables. Um and.
0: Is my asshole American? <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> and then the so, you know so one thing is is that size matters. The other is that it matters what's going on in the world. You can look at a lot of little countries you know, Finland, New Zealand, whatever, and they're nice, but they are operating in the shadow of the United States of America, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about a world where the Chinese market is the dominant consideration in every company's uh, decision-making, in every government's trade policies, life is going to get worse for us, but also for all the small fish out there who've like, they, they've been used to complaining about America and, you know, God knows we have our flaws, uh, but it gets way worse. It gets yeah. way worse than the United States. And that's what we're staring down the barrel of. And our politicians, you know, it's not like you hear Trump or Biden or Lindsey Graham or anyone else. They're not like, here's my plan to like make do is number two. Right. They're all like, well, we're going to restore America. But it's like, well, how? Yeah. Right? And so I'm trying to take the commonplace of American politics that like we should lead in the world and take it seriously. Like, how can we do that?
0: You know, you bring up a good point. And and and, you know, I've always kind of understood this, but I've never heard it said in a concise manner. But uh Sadly, a lot of politicians try and say, we're going to make America great again, and they think that by using it as a racist trope and restricting immigration makes America great again, or or somehow going against globalization will make America great again again, with the populist nationalist agenda that we've been in. Um, But really, what made America great again was that American exceptionalism you talk about, the can-do, let's build the bridges, let's do the thing. Um, you know, I, I heard some people talking about how one of the greatest opportunities we've missed over the last while is not leading in global, <clears throat> in uh, global warming, when well, I mean, we could be outputting so many different products like, you know, Tesla's doing and different companies are doing, and we could we could be exporting that to the world. And our exports have really fallen. I mean, a, a lot of our Intellectualism has been has been sent overseas. you know people come here and, and they go overseas with their their ideas we don 't encourage them to stay here, certainly our immigration policy doesn 't encourage them to stay here and and there 's an old axiom that I use for all the companies I ever built if you 're not growing you 're dying right mm-hmm. and the same applies to a population and a bu- and a business of of running a country if you 're not growing you 're dying right
1: yeah absolutely and you know to to your point about you know, immigration policy, right? You know, historically, the United States has been a great place to be an inventor or to be an innovator. And so a lot of people have wanted to come here to do that. And some of that is just because like, we're great, but other people come here because other people are coming here. You know, it's like you, it it just kind of builds on Right, I mean, it builds on itself, right? It's like you, you, What's everybody, everybody knows that if you're ambitious and you have big ideas and you want to build big companies, that the United States is a good place to do that. Uh, but we have started to make it harder. I shouldn't say we. Donald Trump has taken what was already probably a too restrictive view of student visas and entrepreneurs and skilled workers and things like that. And he's made it harder. He's made it harder to get a student visa. He's made it harder to stay after you graduate. He's made it harder for skilled technology workers um, to bring their spouses over, you know, so less desirable. And that's really, he's killing the sort of the the goose that lays the golden eggs there right mm-hmm. instead of saying this is a source of incredible strength and we need to try to be like more tolerant and embrace the virtues of diversity he's leaned into people's worst instincts and squandered so much of what makes this country precious and what's made this country successful
0: what's interesting is 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 the we we go through these patterns of nationalism, populism, like after World War One, we went into a nationalist phase and we didn't want to get involved in World War Two because we were just like, no, we're not we're not solving the world's problems anymore. F that. Um, and then, of course, we got drug in the war especially with the uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor and that changed. And then you look at the economics that came from that. I mean, it was a, you know, extraordinary, horrific event of war, Mm -hmm. but when you look at the economics of the GI bill, how they came out, they bought, you know, Levittown subdivisions They, they pretty much laid out the concreting of America, if you will. And we became a real country of growth. I mean, everyone went to this, uh, this uh, you know, to pick a fence, two car garage, uh, you know, two weeks vacation to Disneyland, two kids, you know, the nuclear family, if you will. And we went through that that whole thing. And that's really where we were American exceptionalism, where people. Uh, you know, not everyone. Actually, we should probably say about the fifties and sixties enjoyed the the fruits of America, make America great again, if you will. Uh, not not from the not from the racist mm-hmm. sense of that, by the way. I'm just saying the nuclear family, that whole post war era that was really probably the best era in our in our history. But um, w- we were going through growth, and that was like really good. And that which isn't growing is dying, and it, it's sad that people take that time and they think that and and and, and you know what it, i just had a light go on one of the problems is is that time we still had a lot of racism and then we still had a lot of of uh and then we had the civil rights. and maybe that's why people really equate that populist nationalist thing to that racist trope
1: mm-hmm. but wow. you know the the other thing is right so people will say they will be nostalgic Mm-hmm. Uh, for things that 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 were good and were working in that sort of post war era, uh, but something they forget is that it was a very dynamic time yeah right? It was a time when the built environment changed very rapidly. It was Mm -hmm. a time when, I mean, it was a time when we had tremendous problems of racial exclusion, but it was a time when we made very rapid progress on those issues, right? Mm -hmm. That was when Brown v. Board of Education was decided. That was when Martin Luther King was leading bus boycotts in Montgomery. It was when the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act were passed. So it's understandable to feel nostalgia for a time when things were improving and living standards were rising. But it wasn't a static time. It was a time of change. It was a time of people being challenged to take a more expansive view of the country. It was a time when big things were being built, when people were moving around. And so if we wallow in nostalgia, we can't possibly capture what was actually valuable about that time, which is it was a time when, as a country, we were open to change, right? Yeah. When we saw ourselves as having surmounted big problems of the war, tackling big new problems of the Cold War, going to the moon, opening up the, the, the crabgrass frontier of the suburbs. And, you know, the United States has become a country that is very um, crabby, you know with a lot of people fighting each other a lot of fear <laughs> Trump is running around you know it's like Cory Booker he's gonna destroy the suburbs and it's like
0: oh he is yeah it's, yeah it's
1: it's barely even a dog whistle right I
0: mean we're all gonna be living in tents I think and I all he's yeah. talking
1: about it's like okay you know we like, did that
0: during Obama didn't we weren't we living in tents during <laughs> FEMA, that time too, Fema, sure, Fema yeah. concentration camps I think was
1: <laughs> the, no so you know it's like yeah like we got a black senator and he has an idea to make it easier to build affordable housing and all kinds of communities like like why is that even bad you know trump doesn't even try to articulate why these things are bad he just tells people that change should frighten them and And we're not going to accomplish anything as a society with that mentality
0: and and we're talking about a really great point i mean people don't realize the thing that made that era really great financially it wasn't great like i said for everybody but you had uh you you came from uh uh but women were working in the factories we had this huge factory building I mean, we were exporting war basically at that point but you know people weren't spending a lot of money in fact there was a lot of rationing back then so they weren't putting they weren't buying a lot of things because they couldn't but so they were saving what money they had everyone was kind of leaning themselves out you had the gi bill and so you had like all these all these young men coming back from world war II with an immense amount of savings. You had the GI bill, they could buy houses. They were just flooding the economy and the economy, you know, we, we grasp it and grew with it because, you know, we had to, you know, you got to build houses and then those people are having kids and then we got to have those kids. And, and it was just this huge money roll. Of economy and growth and expansion and and then like you say we started to die with those things we saw some of the blowback from from what Johnson did with civil rights and then you know people arguing and then we started to see the economy starting to expand and contract and that you know causes its own thing that play probably plays into politics. Uh, for me, I love the idea of one billion Americans because, like I said, if you're not dying, you're and you're not growing, um, you're not doing things and. That, I think that needs to happen, like you say, from two folds. Either we need to breed it, um, which we really need to get like the incels of the 20-year-olds dating some more because I understand that's a real problem. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, but also the immigration thing. And we had Jean Guerrillo on with her book about Stephen Miller and, and talking about uh, all this anti-immigration stuff that's part of the Trump administration. The one point that they bury is that, <clears throat> and that no one ever seems to th- talk about, is the immigrants that come to this country, like you say, they come here uh, doing the dream? I mean, what what if Steve Jobs had never, his parents had never come here from, I think, Syria? Uh, the the CEO of, of Google uh, grew up on a dirt floor in India in a hut. Um, you know, this is this is this is the the embracement of the dream of, of who we are that you can come here and have that dream. But uh, one of the things that they buried is the the net profit of immigrants coming here to america is i forget i I either have them just sexually fixed it's either 68 billion dollars in contribution to the economy or 86 it's 68 or 86 i got them flipped somehow so it's one of those two and what people don't realize is yeah yeah if people do come here and they're struggling they might use some of our services but they also put money in the economy they go to the local 7-eleven the local mom and pop shop they go they buy goods they interact with the economy they spend and keep the money flow going and that's what a lot of people just don't get they just think that they show up and they go they take everything and you're just like no that that doesn't work that way
1: Look, human beings have existed uh for a couple <laughs> million years And for the vast majority of that time, the way it worked is that we were living off the land and more people meant more mouths to feed. So if some people showed up from another tribe, another village, that was trouble. You know, it was trouble for you, it was trouble for your friends. And that is so deeply ingrained into the way we think on an instinctual level, because it's the way human life worked for most of our history. The modern world is not like that, you know? Very, very few of us make a living growing food or raising livestock, um, and very little of our budget. We are privileged to live in a world where, you know, you, people struggle economically, but groceries are not out of reach for the vast majority of people, right? Instead, we do things. We've got a podcast, got a website, we're selling books. Maybe you're a doctor or a nurse. You're a teacher. You uh, you cook in a restaurant. You got a store. We're doing things for each other. You know, you're cutting somebody's hair. You're an electrician. You you help people out when they want to renovate their kitchens.
0: I have an right? OnlyFans account.
1: There you go. <laughs> uh, but so people are not our competitors for like you know, we're sharing the cow, or we've got to split the rice crop uh, further, right? They are our customers and our partners. Like, it's hard. You you can't build a business without customers. And you can't build a business really without, you know, uh, partners you work with, employees you hire, things like that. And so it's all fuel to the fire. And then we benefit, right? Ideas fundamentally drive our growth forward. You know, somebody invents, you know, an iPhone or you know, uh, Zoom, so we can record these podcasts, things like that, and. Everybody gets to take advantage of those inventions, and the more people there are though, the more of those inventions we get and it 's scale you get increasing returns to scale is the is the jargon for it and it 's very counterintuitive for good reason it just it cuts against the vast majority of human history, but it 's how the modern world works and it 's incumbent on you know people in people with platforms, people with audiences, to try to uh, remind people to speak to our better angels, to think more rationally. And then you have demagogues, you know, like Stephen Miller, like Donald Trump, who take advantage of what they know is out there in the sort of lizard brain to scare people, to take advantage of them, to, to, to rob them. And it's incredibly damaging when we see society dominated by that kind of discourse.
0: You bring up a really good point uh, with the, you know, where we in caveman days, we, we, we had this economy of, pol- of, of scarcity, and now we have uh, politics of scarcity, where we're like, hey, I only have so much cake right here, and I don't want to share it with you, and that, that's kind of the <clears throat> mantra of, of the politics of, the, of immigration, and, you know, it really resolved, when you look at the problems of some of our uh, American problems, like the, the Rust Belt. Uh, which used to be this huge steel industry. And so many ideas moved out of there. And people have moved out of those areas because they've become scarce for jobs. They've been scarce to economy. And so a lot of people go, well, we, we should blame the immigrants or we should blame globalization and China and, and Mexico and are our problem, et cetera, et cetera. When that's not really true, the problem is, <clears throat> is there hasn't been enough ideas, especially in that area and enough people living in that area that have thought of something new. Instead, they were just like, well, we just, we did steel and I guess steel isn't big anymore. So we just got to go where uh, things are better. And to me, the concept of what you have in the 1 billion Americans is, you know, these, the flyover states that people talk about the, these places, I, I feel for these people. I, I've seen some of the videos of some of the places they're in in like Michigan and, and, and desolate uh, ghost towns and, and where the economy is dying, the, 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 you know, gentrification where it's, it's just the old people dying away and there's, there's no one to refill these things. If, if you look at places like Minnesota where they bring in a ton of immigrants where they've come and revitalized an economy and they have a buying power and, a, and, and stuff, and, and it just makes a huge amount of difference. And if we would learn, because that's what made America great was that exceptionalism and that, like, let's build ideas and, and being the melting pot. Of of the world where everyone came here and and melted together and out of it we created this American exceptionalism which really wasn't American What it came down to it. it was the melting pot of of all those people but if we if we opened up an immigration policy and had people come here they could help fill some of these some of these places like. I, one of the things I used to do in living in Vegas, between Vegas and California for several years, is I used to drive that road between Vegas and California, and I'm like, there's a lot of California here that's freaking empty, and it's four hours from the ocean, which is better than probably Michigan. I don't know. Michigan's a nice one. <laughs> um, it's cold there. I'm just, that's my point. But, uh, you know. There's so much we could do. And I was like, you know, back in the 2016 election, I'm like, maybe we should just move these people that are in these places mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we move them where the jobs are. But really, your idea is much better. Let's let's open up the the floodgates. I mean, we don't need to bring everybody in. We need to vet them. You know, certainly we don't yeah. want ISIS people coming in here. But you know, you're no ISIS people.
1: That's yeah. not the 1 billion non-ISIS
0: people. 1 billion non-ISIS. Uh, but, you know, we're kind of growing our own ISIS over here. So we got that going on. You know, I'm afraid of people who look like me. That's who I'm afraid of blowing up stuff and shooting <laughs> up stuff. Uh, but, uh uh, you know, the, the thing I learned a long time ago with business as well, you know, not only the growing mantra, if you're not growing, you're dying, uh, but also the... uh uh, the exception, the, the, the uh, I can't find the right word for it, but the one rule I had in my business is I didn't have all the ideas and no one had the monopoly on all the good ideas. And so I would go to my people and go, okay, so here's what we're trying to fix or here's what we're working on or here's what we're trying to innovate. <clears throat> uh, who's got ideas? And the one thing I learned is the people you think don't have ideas have some pretty good ideas and you need those mm-hmm. people. And I didn't always have the answers. I'd go mad, you know, going, I gotta come with the answers on the CEO. And having those people that have the ideas that generate and, and stuff like that. And you can't you can't walk down a line of people and go, Well, you're poor, you're rich, you're educated, you're not educated, you're this, you're that, you're whatever. You can't you can't look at people and go you know, you're the difference between having the idea of being successful or contributing to this economy or not contributing to this economy. And it's really sad that we've been polluted by politics where we don't think this is a great idea.
1: Yeah, I mean that's exactly right. You know, you were talking about you know if you're not growing, you're you're dying, and and it's true of businesses. It's really true of communities, right? When you go to a place like Cleveland, uh, which is a city that it has some real assets to it, but it was hit by deindustrialization. It was hit by suburbanization, and it's hit by the fact that you know to be perfectly blunt about Northern Ohio, it's cold. You know, it's so people, they're inclined to move someplace warmer, and they've had some some negative shocks to their economy. But so now you go to Cleveland, and well, you know, they've got pensions uh, for their fire department, their teachers, things like that, that accrued in the past when the city had more residents. Uh, so that's hard, right? You got f- fewer people paying those kind of old obligations. So the city services are not as good as they would be in a growing city. Uh, there's no there's not much like construction jobs, right? Hard hat kind of stuff because the city is shrinking. Uh, Because you know it's shrinking if you're young and you grow up there and you've got a great idea for a business, you're more likely to take it to some other city, to Nashville or Austin or Vegas, Charlotte, someplace that's growing, right? So the lack of growth now hampers growth. Mm -hmm. And leaders in a city like that, they're hoping for some big shot, right? So it's like, maybe I will land the national, you know, battery technology, whatever prize. You know, we'll get this. The Amazon warehouse. Yeah, the the Amazon, you know, right, HQ2. But it's not just Cleveland, right? Toledo is shrinking. Mm -hmm. Cincinnati is shrunken. Akron has shrunk.
0: Detroit.
1: Detroit, Milwaukee, Buffalo. And then littler cities, right? Hartford, Utica, Rome. And it's it's too many. St. Louis has actually shrunk even more than Detroit. And you can't like HQ2 your way to victory for all these places. But you can go to places, whether it's Minnesota or whether it's a, a small town like Lewiston, Maine, and people have come there as refugees. And to them, it's like, okay, yes. Maybe Lewiston, Maine is a little bit cold and a little bit remote, but it's way better than Somalia. Like they are thrilled to have the opportunity to live in Lewiston. (laughs) And once they're doing that, it becomes a vibrant place where other people are also thrilled to live. Because there was never anything wrong with Lewiston, but like the paper mill closed. So it hurt their tax base. And they lost their jobs. Main Street had businesses that were shuttered. And it's ugly. Like, that's not what people want. But then some more people move in. The closed businesses, you know, the storefronts reopen. So now it's nice. And now, you know, because you got some foreign people there, you've got restaurants that you can't find elsewhere in the state. People come in. And, you know, most people in the town aren't refugees. They're not necessarily going to the Somali restaurants even. But just once you start, your population is growing. It's like, you need a plumber you need an electrician. You're hiring teachers instead of laying them off. And it's just a growing, thriving community, and you don't even think about it. But we need to do something to sort of draw a line under the crisis of decay that afflicts so many of these Midwestern and Northeastern cities. And it's just a tragedy to have people who are Clamoring, They would love the opportunity to come move to some of these places that are more affordable. Um, and we're, we're keeping them out. We're like locking people up rather than, you know, screening them and saying, yeah, you know, like do a background check. I mean, do whatever. But like, yes, like make a pathway for people to come in.
0: You know, I, I was, uh, talked about recently I can't remember what news item triggered it, but we've had a lot of people on talking about, you know, Stephen Miller, Trump, the immigration policies and stuff. And you look into the cost of what we put to lock people up and manage the border and all that crap. And you could literally take, and I don't know, buy a mansion for everybody in Detroit that's in the bad parts of the city, like for, for what it's cost us to, to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and like i say and and like we've been talking about the the the, the like i always i hear people say well they come here and they just take all our money and and use all our services and like no they have to buy groceries they have to buy like you say they have to buy plumbers and the cars and and it all comes back i mean even even uh, i I've, I've known undocumented workers uh even then i mean they they'll save their money. They're really miserly with their money. They'll save their, save their cash. Unfortunately, they save a lot of it under the mattress. Um, but when they go, they'll, they'll drop cash, and they'll, they'll buy things, and, they'll, and even then, the, the way we restrict, come to think of it, people from interacting with the economy. I mean, I, mean, I think... Uh, uh, California just finally broke down and, you know, let people that were undocumented have driver's licenses. I think if I recall rightly, or at least get an ID card because you, you've got to have them in the economy. If they're in uh-huh. the economy, they pay taxes. They, you know, they're, they're in there. But if you don't, I mean, there's just, they're, it's just amazing how people think this is. <clears throat> let me ask you this. Cause I don't know if you get into this in the book, but We've had a lot of conversations about billionaire gol- uh, oligarchy sort of attitudes with some of these giant packs, national councils, I uh, think Betsy DeVos sort of societies uh, that kind of have this whole thing where they want to control America. They want to control uh, a lot of what goes on. A lot of this is from an industrial basis where it's not really a political thing except for the feature of control because, if, you know, you can keep low wages. You can keep from going to $15 an hour. You can keep, you know, you 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 make more money for yourself. The billionaires get richer. Do you get into any of that in the book, and and you know how that affects us or the prospects of it?
1: Well, you know, I mean, uh, just one obvious question people have is like, well, like, where are you going to get the money for these programs to to support people and and their larger larger families and you know more childcare and more daycare and you know you've got to look at the fact that a relatively small number of incredibly wealthy people are absorbing just an incredible share of the economic resources in this country, and you know, some of them have done it in crooked ways, some of them have just done it by making cool stuff. But the fact of the matter is that the you know what do you do with your second billion dollars um, just not that much, you know? But that billion dollars could make all the difference for thousands of families struggling to get childcare for their children, right? Struggling to pay the rent on a three-bedroom apartment somewhere. And there's just so much we could do to unlock the potential of the country by saying that, like, you know, what, what was the the old line about what, why do you rob banks and you know that, that's where the money is? Absolutely. Like I don't I don't, I don't I don't I don't I don't per se bear the billionaires any ill will. Yeah. Um, but like but th- but that's where the money is. You know, we've got big stuff that we need to do, and I think people know that, right? Like if
0: yeah. if people- there was
1: if there was an alien invasion tomorrow. And, you know, like the lizard people were enslaving us or something. Uh, Republicans wouldn't be out there being like, well, how are we going to pay for that? Right. It's like, (laughs) we know, like you take, you got to get the money from the people who have the money. Uh, The problem is like, they just not take the problem seriously. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, but we need to, you know, we, Fortunately, don't have aliens invading, uh, but we have people who can't get the necessities of family life together. And so we got to get the money from people who have it and uh, do what it takes.
0: Yeah. And I think, but this is why books like you're important to educate Americans because really, you know, you, you, you hit on it during Kennedy, we had this vision and he's like, we're going to the moon. I don't know how the fuck we're getting there, but we're going to the damn moon. And and we set these goals, you know. Uh, we had these visions. Uh, it, it, I, I kind of sound like uh, what's his face in the news it was the newsroom where he gives that speech about how America's not great anymore. He goes, "Damn sure we used to be. We used to give a damn. We used to go to the moon. We used to care about things." And and. We had leaders during that time that had visions for us that went, we're going to the moon. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to be the exceptionalism in America. We're going to spread democracy around the world. Um, And then we went to leaders that have this scarcity of of economics and politics that largely are just doing that for control. I mean, clearly the reason they're doing racist and anti-immigration things is because it gives them power. They, they, you know, they can, they can get into someone's deep-seated fear of scarcity, of rationing, and play on that and get power. I mean, that's really what what's at play here. I mean, if, if, there was, if those people didn't respond to that, Donald Trump wouldn't be president right now. He, we, we'd be like, you're stupid. And there was a time in our life where we would not have looked at a guy like him and gone, that's dumb. We'll vote for JFK. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's probably the, one of the real problems is because we look to these people for leadership, and they take us down these dark roads. Uh, you look at Ronald Reagan and 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 issues there. You look at uh, George Bush. I mean, I mean, the trillions of dollars we put into Iraq and trying to empire build over there uh, is just extraordinary. Meanwhile, you know, we've raised some of the dumbest things. Do you get into any uh, of why these young people? Aren't breeding as much? I know that's one of our issues we're having.
1: Breeding. You know, I, I, I don't like to put it in those terms. Look, people say, <laughs> people say, they survey them and say, you know, um, like, how many children would you like to have? And it's about two, two and a half. Um, on average, obviously, people don't want to have, to have a child. Um, and then they look, you know, so how many children do people actually have these days? It's a little bit more than one and a half. Um, And so they asked people, it's like, well, why don't you have as many children as you wanted to have? And number one item they give is childcare costs too much. Number two is by the time I was financially secure enough, I was too old. Mm -hmm. Number three is something else. Um, Number four is like also about cost. And just like that's the issue. So I discuss in the book, it's called Baumol's Cost Disease. But it's like a fundamental sort of law of economics. And the cost of things that we can't get more efficient at goes up over time. And it's just like if you've ever taken care of a little kid, you know, baby, little kid, it's just it's labor intensive. You know, like your computer doesn't help you. The internet doesn't help you. Um, You just gotta, you gotta, you gotta sit there and do it. You gotta watch them with your eyes. You gotta change diapers with your hands. And now maybe someday we'll have like a robot nanny and there's no problem, right? You know, I'm I'm not putting out like laws of universal human history, but the way it is now, the cost of childcare has gone up 350% since 1980. Yeah. Uh, So it's no wonder people don't have children. You know, it's not like, nobody thinks babies are cute anymore or or anything like that. It's just like, it's not feasible, but we can address this. Like we have social security and Medicare to take care of people when they're old. Otherwise this, you know, we got like 87 year olds, like living good lives today mm-hmm. and like they couldn't do all kinds of work, but like, it's good. So this is like what we have a society for and we need to make it possible for people to
0: raise children. What about the cost of healthcare too? I mean, that's that's another. Well, the
1: cost of healthcare is kids. not great. Um, you know, yeah. I, I, it's it's. I wanted it to be like a huge factor in kids, just because I like the healthcare topic. Um, children's healthcare is more affordable than other things, uh, but I mean, if you just want to look at American society, I mean, this is just a huge burden on the cost of living um, and something you know we've got to address.
0: Yeah, there you go. Uh, so we could probably talk for hours about all this stuff, but it's probably better if people just uh, break down and get the book. Anything more uh, in parting, Matthew, you want to tell us about what's in the book? And
1: I, Well, I do want to emphasize that you should buy the book because – that's fundamentally why we write them. Um, no, but you know, seriously, uh, this is by design—a little bit of a loopy idea. Um, but it's it's a short book and it's a fun book, and it is chock full of answers to the questions that you have about this. You know, um, where's the houses going to go? How's the transportation going to work? Like, it's all in there. I promise you. Uh, I know what I'm talking about. Um, you read the reviews are very good. Got a lot of five stars up on Amazon. So please check it out.
0: There you go. There you go. And and I love the idea. I mean, it would fill up. Uh, there's there's a lot of land still in this in this world, and we didn't kind of get to, you know, how we used to have this idea of, like, there's too many people in the world. Actually, growth is fairly good, and we'd probably come up with some really good people that would come up with really good ideas to solve some of the issues that we have. But it would refill some of these cities that are dying and and uh, just innovation, uh, ideas concepts just to uh, build a better world and yeah we are going to be second fiddle I mean regardless of what uh, someone in populism or nationalism does with going hey we're going to take our little pie and we're going to just hold it really closely and it'll be uh we'll still be the best no you won't <laughs> the, the world will run roughshod over you I mean China is taking up so many resources in in South Africa uh, they're pretty much buying up the continent when it really comes down to it I mean if we want resources we're going to have to go to them in the future and there will be a time where they'll have a stranglehold on us I mean already they're starting to like you say with movies in Hong Kong they're starting to run roughshod and and now they've got uh, you know uh, the uh, with the Uyghurs they've got their own uh, uh, Holocaust camps over there uh, you know they're just going we'll do whatever we want and if, if America really wants to be exceptional it's got to be get away from scarcity and back to what really made America great was that shooting for the moonshot and doing things that are great. You know, like, uh, you know, people ask me, like, why do we go to Mars? Why do do we want to go to Mars? Because there's so much stuff that comes out of that. So anyway, guys, uh, it's been wonderful to talk with Matthew. Grab the book, One Billion. I want to insert Carl Sagan in the post-edit, maybe Mm -hmm. saying billion. One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger by Matthew Iglesias. Matthew, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. And thanks, audience, for being here. Go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification ding and subscribe to all the different things we have going on there. Tell your friends, neighbors, relatives, dogs, cats, pool boys, mistresses. Get them involved in the show. They can uh, subscribe at thecvpn.com, all nine podcasts over there. Follow me on Goodreads forward slash Chris Voss or on Facebook. We've got some groups over there you can take and join on Facebook as well. Uh, Be sure to uh, register to vote wear your mask, take care of yourself and your family and your friends around you. There you go. And we'll see you guys next time.
1: Thanks.